In this episode, staff writer Soham explains the causes and consequences of the partition of India and Pakistan. Hello, my name is Soham Sethi, and today I'll be hosting The Voice Box, the official podcast of the IHS Voice, which is the official newspaper of Irvington High School. And I'll be discussing a really horrific event in history, one that I have a deep personal connection to, as my family was directly involved in it less than two generations ago. I'll be talking about the historical atrocities of the partition of India and Pakistan. So first, I'll go over some context. You know, the subcontinent of India, as we know it today, which is, you know, one united, or I guess two united, disunited countries, was never really united. You know, for thousands of years, India consisted of various villages, towns, and empires. There's no real such thing as India. India wasn't even an idea. You know, many of these villages, like different villages, would speak different languages, or at the very least, a different dialect of Hindi or Sanskrit. And, you know, there'd, um, there would be, outside of trade, there would not be much communication between these various empires and villages. There would be warfare, but not much unified communication. And there was no national identity of India for thousands of years. And, you know... There are obviously some empires which emerged much, much larger than others, and one of the notable ones is the Mauryan Empire, which in the height of its powers in the late BC era nearly united the Indian subcontinent. It was probably the closest, you know, we have ever come to a united Indian subcontinent. But um, there's no one in this world that remembers that, and no one remembers an Indian subcontinent united pre-partition. And two of the largest empires in the common era later on included the Gupta dynasty, you know, which also allowed the spread of Buddhism around the world. And the last true empire in India, the last true Indian empire was the Mughal Empire. So early on, they were conquerors. They came from Central Asia and they conquered Northern India and modern day Pakistan and brought Islam to India. And, you know, obviously they were here for so long that they kind of became part of Indian history and they're now considered Indian. And their influence is great as now India is the, has the largest Muslim population of any non-Islamic country. And in order for that to happen, that era featured many forced conversions where uh, the government, the Islamic government, forced many of the Hindus, the dominant Hindu religion, into Islam. However, at the same time, it also saw the prospering of the arts and science, sciences within the Indian subcontinent. And this is probably the time when the Indian subcontinent was the most economically successful. As you saw, many European traders, such as Christopher Columbus, desperate to find a path to India because it was so powerful at that time. You know, obviously at that time, as I said, the Mughal Empire never united India. There are other kings, there are other Rajputs, there are other empires. And, you know, European powers such as Portugal had arrived in India, but it's safe to say the Mughal Empire was the most powerful. You know, however, around the mid-1700s, the Mughal Empire began to weaken. This is when the uh, British East India Company entered India around this time. And they began their strategy of dividing and conquering within the subcontinent. They would put local nawabs or, you know, local governors of the Mughal Empire against each other. And on top of that, they would promote stoke religious violence between the Hindus and Muslims. 
obviously, you know, even before this, there was religious violence. I mean, within India, the infamous Aurangzeb, um, you know, forced many conversions, had a religious tax, and beheaded people who refused to submit to his rule. But, you know, there was also a lot of prosperity and harmony between the two religions. Cities such as Delhi became thriving cosmopolitan centers where Hindus and Muslims existed side by side. And communication and trade between places such as Delhi, Lahore, Amritsar, Karachi, you know, existed and thrived, which we would never see today in the current climate. You know, upon the turn of the 19th century, the Mughal Empire had all but collapsed, and much of the Indian subcontinent came under British, the British East India Company. And this is really the first time where we saw an India, you know, not just a collection of empires. This was India under one ruler. And really, India didn't even come under the rule of the crown. You know, up until this point, they were ruled by a company until the brutal Sepoy Rebellion when afterwards the subcontinent became known as the British Raj, and that is when an Indian identity began to arise. You know, in the 1920s, that is when we saw a real push for independence. And this movement was led by leaders such as Mahatma Gandhi and Jawaharlal Nehru, both of which were part of the Hindu-dominated Congress party. And many Muslims at that time began fearing that in an, in an India post-independence, The Hindus would dominate the Muslims and, you know, maybe take revenge for what happened under leaders such as Aurangzeb. So that is when, you know, an idea of splitting the nation arrived. And obviously, this idea was also supported by the British because they knew it's better to leave your underlings divided than united. And uh, um, they were egged on by Muhammad Ali Jinnah and other Muslim leaders who created the Muslim League. And in the 1930s, an idea of a Muslim-majority state um, spread like wildfire, especially among the Muslim elite who wanted power for themselves and didn't want to share power or even come underneath the power of the Hindus. But people like Gandhi and Nehru were opposed to such an idea as they feared the consequences of separating India, especially the economic consequences. Because you have to realize to this point, places like Delhi and Lahore had railroad lines connecting to each other. People traveled freely. My own great-grandpa was born in Lahore, moved to Delhi, and then moved back to Lahore. Again, in the current climate things, that would be impossible. However, you know, once 1947 arrived, the Muslim League ended up winning and egged on by the British. That is where the decision to separate India into two territories was final. And, you know, this would not be an innate problem unless it was the way this was planned. And it was such poorly planned as the British, a British man drew the line of India based on the religious population of each village. So, for example, if a village was 51% Muslim, it would fall on the line of Pakistan. Despite it having, let's say, 30% Sikhs, 29% Hindu, so forth. If a village was 51% Hindu, it would fall on the line of India, despite it having a sizable Muslim uh, population. And what ended up happening due to this hastily drawn line, it caused millions of Hindus to end up in Pakistan and millions of Muslims to be in India. And, you know, what happened is just tough to put in words. And violence ensued on both sides of the border. 
religious violence, pure hatred that had been brewing for hundreds of years under the British's policy of divide and conquer. Hindus, Sikhs, and other minorities in the newly uh, drawn up Pakistan had two choices, flee or be killed. And one of these Hindus was my own grandparents, who ended up on the side of Pakistan. You know, they were born in India, but when the line was drawn, it became Pakistan. And when they were two or three years old, they faced that same choice and were forced to run away, drop everything and run away. And, you know, the Muslims in the newly drawn up India, while many of them stayed, as I said, India has the largest Muslim population of a non-Islamic country. Many of them were forced to flee, facing a similar choice of being killed by Hindus that were once their brothers or, you know, saving their lives and dropping everything and flee. You know, millions of people had to trek hundreds of kilometers with nothing but their clothes on their back. And if they were lucky, they would be herded like sheep into a train headed straight for the border. However, some of those trains proved to be traps as those trains featured armed militias that would murder everyone on the train because the armed militias on the India side would be Hindu and they would murder Muslims. And the armed militia on the Pakistan side would be Muslims and they would murder every Hindu on that train. And the atrocities that occurred separated families from generational homes. Like my own family, for example, lived in that home for over 200 years. They're farmers of that land. But they had to leave that land. And we still have no idea what happened to that home, what happened to our belongings in that home nearly two generations later. And the partition resulted in the death of up to one million people. However, possibly the worst part of the partition was the long-term legacy of trauma and hatred. Today, Hinduism is largely extinct in Pakistan, despite there being hundreds of millions of Hindus pre-partitioned. Majority of the Hindus that had lived in Pakistan for hundreds of years, like my own family, either fled, died trying to flee, or were forcibly converted, and those who remained still face persecution to this day. Places such as Lahore, which were once cosmopolitan and liberal paradises, are now shells of their former selves, and the ghosts of what uh, what was still roams around the city today. The connectivity between various metropolitan centers like Delhi or Lahore no longer exists. And Pakistan, and on the other side, Pakistani nationals are all but banned from traveling to India. And if an Indian citizen wants to travel to Pakistan, he needs a new visa for every city he visits. For example, if you go to Lahore, you need a Lahorian visa. If you go to Karachi, you need a Karachian visa. And while India, at least in its early days, adopted a secular constitution thanks to the leadership of Jawaharlal Nehru and Mahatma Gandhi, um, and it was more welcoming of its Muslim minorities, those values seem to be eroding today. The emergence of right-wing nationalism in India has caused the Muslim minority to be at risk, and daily lynchings occur on the basis of religion. And long-time Muslim places of worship are being torn down. And any city with a name, any mention to Islam, like Allahabad, has been forcibly changed to a more Hindu-favorable name. And unless you reside in a large city that was like a cosmopolitan center for hundreds of years, such as Delhi or Mumbai, it is no longer safe to be in India if you are Muslim. And in terms of the political sphere, India and Pakistan are public enemies number one. Pakistan has became highly militarized upon the death of Muhammad Ali Jinnah. They've had multiple coups 
uh, removing their democratically elected president. And this all leads to the highly controversial territory in Kashmir, which has sparked three major wars uh, since 1966 and thousands of smaller skirmishes. But despite all this negativity, there is some positivity we can talk take from the partition, and it is about persistence. Persistence of a group of people and one nation divided into two, and the way they were able to overcome the fracturing, the fracturing of hundreds of years of civilization. And today, the Indian subcontinent is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And one of the stories of persistence is all for my grandparents, who I mentioned earlier, were all born either Hindu or Sikh, and were born in India, which ended up becoming Pakistan. And obviously, when they were, when they were born, there's no such thing as Pakistan. And my grandparents had to flee everything they had, and they spent years in refugee camps or on terrible allotted government land. They went from living on a generational farmland, you know, obviously owning land is the biggest power you can have, to living in a tent in a refugee camp. And, you know, against all odds, my grandpa, my grandma, and another one, uh, two of my, three of my grandparents, essentially, became college graduates. And it ended up leaving successful lives, all becoming homeowners. That is what you call persistence. And, you know, this is not some anecdotal fallacy was uncommon to just my grandparents. The aftermath of the partition was all about persistence. How can a country lift itself up after literally being split into two? How can individual families pack themselves up after losing wealth and livelihoods built up over generations? All in all, the country and people of India and Pakistan and Bangladesh all persisted. And today, as I mentioned, South Asia is one of the fastest growing economies in the world. And families who are torn apart during this time are back on their feet. And some are even thriving to pre-partition levels. And at the end of the day, the partition forced people to persist. And in a world that breaks you down more often than it builds you up, persistence is the most important trait a person can possess. <laughs>